Okay, good morning. This is your morning prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for waking me up on this glorious Sunday morning. I thank you for your protection, not only for myself, but for this church family also. I give thanks for health, strength, grace, forgiveness, peace, and joy. We should always give thanks for your divine guidance and never failing us as Christians. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Acts 9, verses 1 to 22. This is a part of the story of Acts that follows the death of and the martyrdom of Stephen which resulted in great persecution of the church in Jerusalem so that they were scattered uh, away from Jerusalem. And uh, since Saul had witnessed uh, the death of Stephen and had agreed to it, Saul is a very important person in reference to the early church. Let us give attention to the reading of God's word. Meanwhile... Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days... He was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. 
all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jeanette. Hey, everybody. It's so good to be with you. I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you were here last week, um, you didn't see me because I was gone. I was on vacation with my family in Daytona Beach, Florida. If you don't know much about Daytona Beach, I highly recommend it. If you can go with the friends that we got to go with. Uh, These are friends from seminary who we've known for a really long time. And so I come back uh, a changed man. I really just rested, which is enough to change somebody, depending on the pace you're keeping in life. I'll just tell you two things about uh, my travels. One, I got to swim with a manatee. And two, we saw uh, some sea turtles hatch. Neither of those things actually happened. Here's what actually happened. Uh, We saw a blob in the water swimming. And immediately I thought, this is a moment for joy. And so uh, I told the folks who were up uh, on the balcony that could see down in the water, like, just track it for me. And I ran down to the beach and they told me where to go. And I was sure it was not a shark, but a manatee. And Corey was sure that I shouldn't figure it out. So uh, I ran out into the water. And that's why I say I swam with a manatee, because I was at least 20 or 30 feet from something. And then Corey told my friends to pull me out of the water. And so everyone waved me in. And so that counts as swimming with a manatee. And then there was a bunch of sea turtle, uh, like hatcheries, you know, buried under the sand. And we kept going out like every two hours to figure out if they had hatched on full moon nights. And we apparently they hatched one of the nights we went out. So we might have seen them, but we didn't actually see them. Uh, so it was like a whole week of almosts, uh, while we were gone. I did get to go worship last Sunday. I was praying for you all uh, and checking in with the staff on Sunday. And I thought, you know, I never get to hear other people preach. Uh, I never get to experience worship where I don't have to do anything, which is very different. And so I did what a lot of people do. I let Google and the Holy Spirit tell me where to go to church. And found this uh, Catholic parish, Lady of Our Lords, L-O-U-R-D-E-S. And it was amazing. It turns out that the spirit is present in uh, Daytona Beach as well as Pasadena. Um, But thank you for the space to get to rest for a little bit. A special thanks to the staff and the leadership team for all that y'all did while I was resting. Uh, We have arts camp coming up this week. So as much as I would love to tell folks, like now we can all rest because I'm back and we can spread the load. It's just going to increase by double or triple next week. So, um, But I'm here and I get to share with you about this sermon text from Acts chapter 9. Uh, this is one that everybody knows at some level, right? This is the conversion of Paul. But I've been with it now for weeks. And I preached two weeks ago, and that sermon had kind of been with me for quite a while. This one has been with me for an equal amount of time. But of, over the course of two weeks of study, I have felt a deep, deep calm about what I think this text is saying to us today. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Uh, Along with the reading, would you join me in a prayer and then we'll jump into things. God, guide our listening, our being together, that somehow our minds would find a sense of unity and curiosity here in this space. That you would be present in ways that are fitting to each of us and all of us. And you would guide my speech as well. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, have you ever, I don't know what kind of people you grew up with in your house, but I grew up with the kind of people in my house that every once in a while, when you were taking a shower, somebody would come and with like a whole pitcher of ice water, pour it over the shower curtain onto you. Did anybody else grow up in a home like this? Who, oh, let's just say it this way. Who has had water poured on them in the shower ice cold before? Not for funsies, like today it would be for funsies, right? Everyone's wishing that was a thing that was happening. Who was the kind of person who did the pouring? Show your hands. Just so, did you raise your hand both times, Zach? Was it retaliation? 
for you? The pouring. That's the, that's a good question. Are you a vengeful person by heart or a victim? Shaving cream is a totally different thing. Uh, yeah, this happened to me all the time. Every once in a while, it would be so shocking that I would fall. And you're not supposed to fall in the shower because there's all kind of sharp knobs and stuff and you have zero protection. Uh, it's a shock. You think you're in the middle of one thing, right? And, the, and then it's, you end up in a totally different space. This is exactly what it feels like to be Paul in this story. He's in this mode of operation that feels very familiar to him. He is living the path of a good rabbi, seeking out what is in and what is out, discerning where God is present and where people are taking them on a dangerous path and responding appropriately. Uh, Very comfortable in this role, very in his lane with zeal and gusto. And this story is a story of the spirit, sort of ice water over the head. Except in this case, it knocks him out, it renders him blind. In a lot of ways, the text says it kills him for three days. He doesn't eat or drink, and he can't see anything. That's the story that we encounter today. But we need to remember what Paul was like. We talk about him, Paul or Saul, and maybe we think that Saul is the name he got before Jesus found him, and Paul is the name he gets after Jesus finds him. But it's really just like a Roman name and like a Jewish name. It's the same person, and yet in no way is it the same person. Because Paul, before this story, right, very much thought he was serving God. This wasn't like he was like a heretic, way off in left field, he knew everything about the tradition, about Judaism. He was like straight-A student, probably a bit annoying. I imagine that Paul was kind of annoying. Uh, But he knew his stuff. And if anyone would have been considered faithful, keeping the law, it was Paul. He says this all the time when he writes his letters to the New Testament church. He assumes in his violence he is serving God's will. Let's just take a pause for a moment and recognize that this still happens. In fact, for some of us, growing up in different traditions of Christianity, you might in fact have been saved from a version of faith that felt like serving God, and yet was serving ego, maybe it was simply serving country, maybe it was serving an institutional church that really had nothing to do with Jesus for many, many decades. I don't know. This still happens all the time. We're not all the time saved from the world or from like the depths of sin. Sometimes we're simply saved from religion. And that's what seems to happen with Paul. But he falls into the trap a lot of us do, which we, a lot of us. Now there are some folks who live with the amount of self-loathing and we've talked about that before. But a lot of times we live like we're the heroes of our own story. Different researchers have said that like, when you're trying to pick a position, a way to think through a thing, whatever that thing may be, whatever contentious debate is happening at the time, that we sort of move through all of the research and all of the data, and we assume what we're doing is acting like journalists, gathering bits and pieces of information so that we can make a better and more informed decision about what is right or what is wrong or what is fair or what is unfair. It turns out what our brains are actually doing, rather than being journalists, is that they're acting like lawyers to prove what we already thought. And my ego tells me that I am definitely the center of the world, just like your egos probably tell you the same thing. But whether you live a life of like ease or you live a life of struggle, there's still a way in which you become the center of that story. And a lot of times you become the hero of your own story. This isn't necessarily good or bad, it's just the way that things are. And Paul definitely had a sense of righteousness and justice in his actions. Now we look back on it and say like, how could he get this so wrong that he would persecute, in fact, like sanction the torture and even the murder of Jesus' followers. This is like a simple cut and dry case. But for Paul, it wasn't. For him, it was exactly cut and dry in the other direction. And so he has this moment where the spirit interrupts. More precisely, Jesus interrupts. So he's knocked off his feet, knocked to the ground by something as bright as the sun or brighter. It's some kind of light experience. And in the shock and in the stun, here's this voice. And it asks this question, 
Saul, Saul, why are you hurting me? Which is like a super brutal question. This is the kind of question that would shock me, especially if I thought I was on the path. If I thought that what I was doing was God's will, was righteousness, and then someone, the voice of Christ says, why are you hurting me? We've heard this voice before at different times in our own history. This voice might sound like folks asking for access to a lunch counter in South Carolina. And it's the voice not simply of people of color fighting injustice, but in fact the voice of Christ saying, why are you hurting us? Jesus is calling for some kind of dignity that Paul just can't seem to pass on. Now, Paul doesn't exactly know who it is. So Paul asks the question that I, you all would ask this question. This is the question I would ask, who are you? Knocked off your horse by a light, blinded, and then spoken to so precisely. Now the story moving forward is quite familiar to us. Paul, if you grew up in church, you know Paul as a person of deep complexity, but who wrote a ton of the New Testament, wrote a ton of letters to all of these early churches, founded churches, and then would continue to support them in theology. He's the person who gets credited with this kind of synthesis of what Jesus is doing, what the tradition of Judaism has been saying for a long time, and where the future church will be headed. This is Paul's work and Paul's contribution. And this moment of conversion... It stands as like if you rank moments in the Bible of importance, this is up there in like a top two or three sort of situation. And so we know that Paul moves from one mode of being to another. Let's go to the next slide. You have on your pieces of paper this drawing that I did right here. Um, And... I mean, it's pretty obvious what's happening here, that there's this person kind of moving through a frame, and they step out of some old world, and they step into some new future that's not quite yet known. I drew this before I went on vacation, because we were trying to get ahead of our work, and so I had not fully done all of the study I wanted to do for this text, and this is what most stuck out in my head as the story of Paul's conversion, this dramatic leap and leaving. And we all carry this story around, those of us who grew up in church, what it was like for this conversion to happen. If you notice what's not in this story though, in no point in time does Jesus say, hey Paul, would you like to accept me as your personal Lord and Savior? If so, I have a prayer for you. That's like not in the story. It doesn't mean that if that's your experience it's wrong, it's just that's not Paul's story. Now, Paul ends up becoming sort of the, like, prototypical really bad guy knocked around by Jesus and turned into a really good guy. And sometimes what happens with his story is there is this assumption. We kind of universalize something quite particular, which is we all need to have the story where we were, like, way down here, right, in sin, whatever sin might be for you. It might have been like watching rated R movies. It might have been deep addiction to substances. We've got this whole kind of gradation of what sin means, but whatever, it's the pit, right? And then somehow, and this is a lot of our worship songs sound like this sometimes, God, and then you're new and everything is better and you're ready to write the New Testament, right? Like that's the story. And if your story doesn't comport with that one, If your experience with Jesus doesn't fit the Paul model, then you probably haven't been living your life in the right direction. You probably should gin up some stories. You should make it a little bit bigger. Figure out, maybe you don't believe quite enough. This is how I felt when I would think about Paul's testimony. Like, why didn't I have a story like that? Where Jesus knocked me off of some path and set me on a new one. Why don't I have a moment that I can point to? This is kind of gradual leaning into faith. Now I have the privilege of sitting with so many of you as you tell me your stories. 
And I know that some of you that is. It's like the psalmist says that God found you in the pit and with strong hands pulls you out into new life. And it's just a moment. It's a flash. And forever it will kind of change the course of your life. A friend in our congregation is a family member who has this kind of story. It's like a miracle. And it's a swell. And it becomes a testimony that points other people to the possibility that something new could happen in your life. It's a really cool story. It's just not mine. It's not the one that I can honestly tell about my own life with Christ. So this story in Acts 9, I read it. And I read it. And I read it over and over. I was trying to listen to the patterns, both to find myself in them and to find us in them as well. And this is what I kept coming back to, is that Jesus shows up in ways that are fitting to you, and you, and you, and me, just as Jesus shows up in a way that is fitting to Paul. The hope and joy of this story is the specificity of it, the particularity of Christ's movement toward this one person. Christ's movement towards you or me is not going to look like it looked to Paul because I'm not Paul and neither are you. You've got your own background in history. I was not trained with Gamaliel. I do not have a background in Teshiva. I don't know all of that, right? That's not my story. My story is something different. So let's look back at it and I want to show you where it gets really specific. Paul asked this question. It's the first question that gets asked after Jesus asks, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus asks it in a way that would be very familiar. Name, name, why? Name, name question, right? Saul, Saul, why are, are you hurting me? It sounds just like classic call narratives in the Hebrew scriptures. Abram, Abram. Moses, Moses. This call eliciting a response. And so Paul asks the obvious question, who are you? If you've got the text, you can open with me. It's in Acts 9. He says, who are you, Curios? Curios is just the word for Lord or master, someone who's in charge. It does not mean God. It does not mean Savior. It does not mean all of those things in Paul's mouth at this time. Just simply there's some kind of force that has authority in this space because it knocked me off my feet and blinded me. Who are you? And the reply comes, I am Jesus, who you're hurting. There's a lot happening in this piece, in this answer. Let me show you what it looks like. This is how it's written in the Greek. You might know this if you know Greek or Latin a little bit. Uh, this phrasing... Uh, ego and me, Jesus. I am Jesus. The, the middle word is the to be verb, this kind of verb for existence. The first word is the, the I, the me. I am Jesus, who you're hurting. Now, just for like super extra bonus points, and you probably know the answer to this even if you didn't know the question, uh, but, but where does this come from? What's happening in this passage? Where's the echo? Where in scripture is Paul feeling some resonance? Somebody, anybody. Say it louder. Yeah. Oh, but you went to seminary. <laughs> Blake says Exodus. Uh, it probably shows up all over. Here, here's Exodus 3. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus 3. Do you know what happens in Exodus 3? It's a story of the burning bush. It's one of these passages that just like dog ear it in your Bible. Or like flag it on your app, whatever it is that you're doing with scripture. This is one of those stories. When God shows up in relationship with Moses and begins to give Moses instructions for the liberation of God's people. It happens at the burning bush. It happens at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there's this sight. Moses turns aside and speaks. And there's this confusion there is this kind of veiled, almost blindness with Moses at first, as God illuminates. So God gives Moses a mission. We're going to need you to go and rescue my people. 
out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's hands. And Moses says, this is chapter 3, verse 13 in Exodus. If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask, what's his name? What am I going to say to them? It's the same question that Paul asks. Who are you? This becomes a fundamental question. I mean, when Jesus asks the disciples this question, it's a turning point. Who do you say that I am? And when they answer, well, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Ah, people didn't tell you this, but God told you this. Because this is the truth of the story. So when Moses asks, what's your name? It's the same question. And so the divine voice speaks. Ego ami. There it is again. I am. Haon is the way that it's rendered in the Greek version of the Old Testament. I am who I am. You know this construction, right? I am that I am. That's what it looks like in the Greek. That's what it looks like in the English. I am who I am is probably the way you're most familiar with. It could also be interpreted, I am who I'm going to be, which is sort of like backhanded, don't ask the question. Or I am who I'm becoming. That the God that you know is the God who is in relationship, which means this is the relationship that will grow and change over time. It's both an answer and a non-answer, but if it's anything, it reveals the deep mystery of God in relationship. And right after this, you get God's divine name, which we mostly know as Yahweh, these four characters, Yod, He, Vav, He. This is the moment when God discloses something new to Moses, and it sets history on a new path. This is what it looks like in the Hebrew. Ehyeh, asher, ehyeh. Some interpreters say that it sounds like breathing. It's that intimate and yet that ethereal. Ehyeh, asher, ehyeh. I am who I am. That's God's response. Why is this important? Well, later, Paul's going to tell the story of this moment. He tells it twice in the book of Acts, in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. Twice he gets to tell this testimony. And in various times in his letters to the churches, he'll go back to the story of his conversion, of this moment. And he has very specific ways of saying it. He always reminds the listeners that I am a man of deep faith in Judaism. I know the whole Torah. I keep all of the law, all of the mitzvot. I am the people of God. Like right here. If you want to see anybody who is righteous and faithful, it's me. I know the story. And so how does God show up? How does Jesus show up? to Paul, if not wrapped in all of the language, all of the allusions and all of the echoes of the story that Paul is most intimately familiar with. Now I could ask you, how many of us here, when you read this passage for the first time or the hundredth time, probably in English or, or in whatever your own language is, of your origin, saw in there Right, like the Greek version, and then after that, you're like, what does the Greek version mean, the Hebrew, and you went to the Hebrew version, like, oh my goodness, like there it is right there. That's not our story. That's not our background, but it was Paul's, and he would have gone there immediately. Somehow, whoever's speaking to him on the road is of a kind with the God who spoke from the burning shrub, the God who changed the course of history and liberated God's people. That somehow this Jesus is also that God. This is a big deal. Because just yesterday, Paul was naming anyone who followed this Jesus as enemies of the faith. And now he's being introduced back to this Jesus as the core of the faith. In a way that only he was prepared to hear it. When I read this and I read this and I read this, I thought, oh, okay. So Christ shows up. To each of us, as we are most ready to receive. Maybe I don't have to crave Paul's conversion story anymore. Don't have to comport my own narrative to his. Well, that's, that's great. Maybe I can just be honest about how I've interacted with God over time. And maybe you can be too. So these are the questions. How does Jesus show up? And in that showing up, what does Jesus say? I want to stop for a minute and just let these questions sit with you for a second. 
not how you think Jesus is supposed to show up and not what you think Jesus is supposed to say. But actually, in your own life, how have you encountered the Christ? And what did Jesus sound like? Come back to those questions. This was Paul's answer to that. Jesus comes as a sucker punch from the tradition. Right? That's what it's like. He thinks he's on the road with Judaism, a righteous, faithful teacher. And then that very tradition just like slaps him all over the place. It's in a way that is fitting for him. For some people... Jesus is experienced and encountered as the way out of a really broken story. This is my dad's testimony. So various times I've told you bits of my dad's life, but grew up in incredibly difficult conditions, spent years of his childhood in an orphanage. All of his siblings have had at various times to deal with, and his oldest brother did not deal with the trauma of childhood in that situation was brought back into his family of origin when his mom, his biological mom, adopted them out of the orphanage, but lived poor and dark-skinned in the South and all of the things that come along with that. And at some point, and he would articulate this to us growing up, Jesus was the voice, the experience that saved him from that old story. When Jesus spoke to my dad, it sounded like that section in the Ten Commandments that says, like, the sins of your parents are going to be visited on your children for so many generations, but for those who keep my commandments until the thousandth generation will be blessing and kindness. It's this moment of turn where all of a sudden my dad feels like he can live a new story. And Jesus sits underneath that experience and encounter and drives it forward. Jesus doesn't come and knock him off of anything, but Jesus reaches down and pulls him out. Maybe that's how you've experienced the risen Christ. As your life just in a pit. And maybe not even of your own making, but out of circumstances and out of tragedies and out of other people's bad decisions. And Christ is the kindness of the universe visited upon you for no reason other than affection and love. Okay? That's pretty dramatic. I wish I had that testimony too. That'll preach. Now, let me say before I go into this one, part of the reason I don't have that testimony is because my dad had a different story. And I was handed something like stability. And uh, so I was able to experience Christ in a completely different way than my dad did. Christ comes to each of us in a way that is fitting for us. So I asked Corey if I could share as I thought about people I know the best in their own relationship with God. And this is how I've come to understand her own journey with Christ. Grew up in church, dad minister, dad taught in seminaries, mom comes from a family of stability and of the practice of, of church. Like, the faith goes as far back as I think Corey's family can remember for the most part. Uh, but when I thought about your own relationship with Christ, I thought about this kind of holy patience. That Corey has developed the ability to wait for the story to resonate with who God has made her to be. And she's experienced, I would say, in my conversations with her, Christ as patient as well. That for her, faith has been this incredibly deliberate and patient walk toward one another of God and of Corey. And Jesus is experienced as the patience of God who has all the time in the world for us to settle in to that embrace. And maybe that's been your experience of Jesus. It's like always kind of been there, but you're never sure what part of that story was yours or what part of that story was your family's.
I'll share mine as a moment of, of uh, showing up and being vulnerable. I have experienced Jesus as longing and as hunger and as desire. Again, I grew up in a family, like always in church. Uh, don't have too many scars about the God that I was handed as a child, the versions of scripture I was handed. I've always had within me this like sort of what you would call a restlessness, depending if I'm in my 20s, early 30s. It's kind of frenetic energy, but this really deep hunger. Like if you're doing a strength profile for me, it's that I'm an enthusiast. I love to experience. I love like, to just drink it all in. And I have a lot of like hunger and craving. And for a long time, I thought, oh, those are the parts of my personality I have to kill. I have to squash because where does hunger and craving lead if not to sin? But over time, I have discovered, as I've settled down and chilled out, that that hunger, that desire, expressed both in like, I just want to eat that. (laughs) That sounds really good. I want that. To, I love the affection of my marriage. To... That wave looks great. I've got to ride that wave, right? Like all of those things that pull into joy, that is Christ that has always been moving in me. Naming it as that, naming I'm experiencing Jesus as this force that pulls me deeper into reality. I don't have to pretend anymore that I needed Paul's story because Jesus has come to me in a way that is fitting for the contours and grain of my life. So the question back to you, which by the way, I'm in good company here. The book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is this like rapturous story about desire and longing. And over time, the church says, oh, that's not just a story about a man and a woman craving. It's not a story of two lovers. It's the story of Christ and the church. Yeah, I can relate to that. I'll read you a passage actually pulled one from chapter 2 in Song of Songs. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind the wall, gazing at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, and now here is how I have heard the resurrected Christ in my own life. And maybe this resonates with some of you. Arise, my fair one, my love, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of spring has come, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. In those moments when I can feel this energy pulsing and pulling me to step out into a depth, into a rhythm, into a call that seems of a kind with the divine, I find Jesus in that space. So the question back to you now. What is your completion for this? What is this version of your story? How did Jesus show up? And what did Jesus sound like? Now in Acts chapter 9, after this conversion, we're going to come back to this question one more time. He spends some time with the disciples in Damascus. He begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. All who heard were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who called all the havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And didn't he come here for the purpose of bringing them bound back to the chief priests? And 22 says this, that Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. It says that he proves that he was the Messiah, and that sounds to me like he formulated a math proof, like A plus B equals Jesus. Uh, But the language for prove is actually the language of knitting together. That Paul, all of the sudden, saw this 
big story of God in relationship with Israel. And this big new story about Jesus as the risen Messiah. And it all just clicks. And it fits. And his proving is not his proving in the way we might think. Like a lawyer, his proving is dissettling. It's how Jesus is the next chapter in that story that Paul's life was supposed to be headed on. And it says that when Paul shares, he shares with power. Because the story he understands is his story. Fitting for him. I've come to believe that, like, um, well, other than Rachel Pena, where's Rachel in here? Rachel? Yeah. Okay. When I, when I came to the church two years ago, I was introduced to Rachel. I'm going to walk to her so you can see her because she's maybe, uh, humble, right? That's Rachel. Um, this is Rachel. And when I was introduced to the church two plus years ago, I was told when I was going to meet you that you were our chief evangelist. Right? That's what people have said about Rachel. That if she meets anybody, she will share with them the story of Jesus. And it's been true. And it rings as deeply sincere. But I haven't met a ton of people like that. Even in churches for so long. Uh, and I'm not all the way sure why, but I think part of it might be that a lot of times we're told to own other people's stories. And not fully understand our own. That maybe the way that God has come to you has been gentle. With no big flash. But like a friend that you just didn't know how to name for a long, long time. And that doesn't feel big enough. It's true. It just doesn't feel important enough. To make a testimony worthy of a two minute pitch in an elevator. And we've been told the only way to tell the story of Christ. Is to tell it. In the flash. In the pit, in the turn, in the moment, will it preach? Parker Palmer, when he writes about how to live a life, the the title of the book is Let Your Life Speak. Let your life speak and tell this story. This is how Rachel does it, and this is, it's so genuine. But if I tried to be Rachel, it would come off as hollow, right? I'm not. There's power in knowing your story well and believing it. Part of what I want you to know and give you permission to do today is to trust the way you've experienced the risen Christ. If you've always felt like you have to experience Christ like the superstars do, uh, it's going to annoy you or it's going to cause you to move into despair if your story doesn't conform. But Paul's story has power because it is his story. And your story has power because it is your story. And sometimes we feel like we have to tell the story of God's work in our life as like a hammer to change everybody and everything. It doesn't have to be like that. Just tell the truth as you are experiencing it and trust that. So I'll ask it again, really specifically. What was it like for you when Jesus showed up? What was it like for you when you thought maybe this, maybe this is the beating heart of the universe, the foundation, the source. Maybe this is love. Wherever love is emanating from, We would call it the heart of God, but where is the heart of God and what is the heart of God? But we felt it at some point. What was it like for you? Was it a flash? Was it a waiting? Was it a hunger? I'm going to ask us to just sit with that question for a couple of minutes. I want you to consider your own story. And I know that not everybody in here maybe even has this story. But a lot of us do. Because this congregation has been formed around Christ's body and in fact constitutes Christ's body in the world. 
which means for many of us, we claim to have encountered at some point the risen Christ. So what was it like for you? Let's close our eyes for a little bit. I'm not going to do that thing where I ask you to raise your hand. If, but just for now to sit. And sit with this question. What was it like for you when Jesus showed up? did it smell like? What was the air in the room doing? Was it a stillness? Was it a breeze? Was it humid? Was it arid? What were the sounds? Was it in a tall mountain meadow and it was quiet except for nature? Was it in the metro? When you realize that Jesus could show up in the most unexpected of places? Was it in a delivery room where new life was appearing? Maybe for you, it was in a different kind of hospital room where you were saying goodbye. When did you encounter the risen Christ. If you found that story in that moment, I'm just going to ask you to hold it. To be grateful for it because it is yours. It is not mine or your neighbor's, it is yours. A friend of mine said that God is present to all of us by being present to each of us. As we take a few breaths together of gratitude for those of us who've been met by the resurrected Christ. Let's just take three breaths in, deeply in, and relaxed out. And in, we breathe the depth of our interactions with God. And out we breathe again. And one last time together, in. And out we say, thank you, God. One last question as you open your eyes. What if this is new? What if you're still waiting for Jesus to show up? And I've been talking for the last like 30 minutes or so about How was it for you? And you're thinking, I've never had that happen for me. I thought it had to look like this thing, and that thing hasn't happened yet. I thought that once I was no longer addicted to that practice or that pattern, then then it would mean that Jesus had shown up. Or, well, I prayed, and the person I was praying for didn't get better. So, So Jesus was absent and has been absent since that. What if you're still waiting? Here's what I want to offer as we move out of this time of teaching and into some more singing. Uh, I'm going to ask if the the staff we have here, uh, if Gretchen's in the room, maybe Gretchen could come down. Uh, We've got a few folks who are on prayer team. If you wouldn't mind, just it's okay to go on ahead and maybe come over here or step into the back um, and go ahead and do that now. We're going to move into a time of singing together. And... We don't have a tradition here where we always have something like a classic altar call, but there are moments when I want to create some space and time for you if you need to respond. If you need to talk to somebody else, if you need to externalize what you are experiencing with someone who is safe. And so we'll just have a few prayer people here as we move into a time of singing. Uh, Pastor Gretchen and myself, we'll just wait down here. Uh, And here's the question. If you uh, are waiting... For this Jesus to show up. And you feel like maybe. Today you've been given permission to trust. 
the story that God is telling to you in a unique sort of way, but you need someone to talk with. You may have noticed that whenever Paul was converted, there were all these other people with him, right? And they didn't get the word. It does not say that they were baptized. Maybe you've been waiting. And then here's going to be the other thing I want you to do while we sing together. There's this other character in the story, Ananias, who was called by God to move close to Paul and to carry him into the presence of God, to give him an understanding and a depth and then to baptize him. And maybe that is your role today is will you walk with folks who are trying to move toward the God that is moving toward them? So I'll just say it one more time and then we're going to sing together and I'll just be up here at the front with Gretchen. If you feel yourself drawn, knocked off, pulled up, loved deeply, and you want to talk to somebody who has a version of this story that they carry around deeply and sincerely, uh, then there is space for you here. If you don't want to do that in a public space, then just put on your card or something and drop it in the offering plate later that you'd like to talk to a minister or one of our uh, prayer team members and we'll find you. The story that I carry around about Christ's involvement with my life is, is deeply intimate to me. And for those of you who have that same story, it's the same for you. The permission to believe deeply in that is great joy. And I'd love to tell you about that. So let's sing together. Would that be okay, Pastor Leslie? We'll be here. We'll be around. There are folks. We'll wait. Sing, I have decided. I have decided to 